Amen. Please be seated. Now, this evening we're doing something not totally unusual. I've done it before. Every now and then, somebody asks a question that I feel would be beneficial for us to look at from God's Word, to answer from God's Word for the whole congregation. Love being asked questions. And we're going to look at a very difficult question that uh, sometimes goes like this How can I believe in a God who would send my granny to hell or to anyone, in fact, anyone who I know and love? And it's a tricky question, it's a difficult question. When I was asked it, I immediately said, Let's do that one. And then when I walked home, I thought, Why did I say that? So uh, I hope that this is helpful. Now, Two things I'm going to do a little bit unusual as well. Uh, There will be a verse come up on the screen, and on it will also be a reference, which is actually my mobile phone number. I would not normally encourage you to text during a service, but um, please do not text a pizza order or anything like that. But if you've got a question that you would like to text, then please do that. Uh, And also, uh, Ian is at the back, Ian Cleck, and uh, for those of you who... um, are spiritual enough not to take your phone to church and you want to write a question, you can do that. If there are no questions, that's fine. The advantage also of having the number is that you can uh, send it to me later and um, we can uh, talk about it then because this is really serious. I'm going to do it in three, I'm going to do it three ways. First of all, I want to set out the question and the parameters. Then I want to turn to God's Word and to see what Jesus has to say uh, about it, and then the third uh, part you like is, if you like, is kind of what the whole of the Bible has to say, or what I believe uh, is the answer from the whole of the Bible. But let me first of all set out the question. It's a very real question, it's a very personal question. As a student, I went to visit my granny in Edinburgh. It wasn't difficult, because I was a student in Edinburgh, and I would go to my granny's every Sunday afternoon, Because I grew up in a household where you didn't watch telly on a Sunday. And Scott Sport was on a Sunday afternoon. My granny always had the telly on. So I I just, I could, I said, I can't help it. I'm visiting granny. So I um, uh, would visit my granny regularly. But when I became a minister at Mbrora, I went down to visit my granny because she was dying. And uh, as far as I know, uh, as far as I knew then, she was not a believer. What could I say? What could I do? And for me, driving down and driving home and uh, a couple of months later going to her funeral, it was a very distressing time because I believe what the Bible says, that there are those who die without Christ, they die without hope, and they are lost. Now, that's incredibly solemn, and it sounds really unfair. If you think that Leviticus is weird and a bit odd, what Jesus teaches about this is so profoundly shocking that instantly we react against it. And so you get people say things, and they're very, to be honest, I think it's quite ignorant, but they, they say things like, oh, that's the God of the Old Testament, and we've got the loving Jesus of the New Testament, And they almost portray Jesus as a correction of our understanding of God. So that, you know, those of you who've got, still use Windows or um, any kind of operating system, you get, you know, version 1.0, version 2.0. And they say, Jesus is like version 2.0. Well, I was reading uh, 
a man who's supposed to be one of the leading evangelicals in the world, Brian McLaren, he says that we now need God 5.0. Mr. McLaren is coming to Scotland and um, having read a significant amount of his stuff and his latest book in particular, uh, I would warn you as your your minister, uh, stay away from him. He's poison, absolute poison. I'd rather listen to an atheist than listen to what he has to say. Because what he says in this is basically we invent God. And that's no use. I don't want an invented God. But then the devil comes always, doesn't he? And to get us to doubt. He did this right at the very beginning. That was the very first temptation when he came to Eve in the garden and said, did God really say? And he then distorts what God had said by adding to it and implying a bad motive with the sole purpose of getting them to turn away from God. And I think that's what happens with this question. I think the question gets asked in such a way that um, it's asked in a scriptural way in a sense. The devil uses scripture, distorts us, distorts it, gets us to question whether God can be good, and then causes us to turn away. The temptation is, of course, to say, Well, just simply, is it true or not? Because if someone says, I don't like it, therefore I'm not going to believe it, it doesn't really help if it's true. But I want to approach it in a slightly different way. Um, It may be, uh, I don't know, this is a long shot. Is any of the students here studying English literature? Anyone got any sense? No No one studying English literature. That is so sad. It really is. What has the university come to? You should really all be studying English literature. When you go across to a posh university like St. Andrews, they're all studying English literature and fine art and whatever. Um, But uh, if you go across to St. Andrews, there is a wonderful bookstore there called Toppings. And the last time I was in Toppings, I bought a book. It's a book uh, that uh, its 450th anniversary is this year. It's the greatest poem in the English language. Anyone know what it is? Somebody, I heard that, Paradise Lost. Yeah, absolutely, Paradise Lost, absolutely wonderful. Um, and I went into Toppings, and of course, this would be the case in St. Andrews. I bought the book, and the salesman behind the counter said, oh, I did that when I did English literature here. And we started talking about Paradise Lost. It's John Milton's poem about the fall. I, 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 I love it, I absolutely love it. it I think it's a wonderful. And especially in the very first stanza, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste I may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. And Milton, in just an incredible way, um, talks about the fall. Now, I think he gets some things that are wrong, but it's, it's beautifully, beautifully expressed. And that phrase, justify the ways of God to men, My intention here is not to defend God as though you have the right to accuse him and I have the ability to defend him. But what I do intend to do is it disturbs me enormously that the devil uses this to cause us to think badly of God. If our aim is to glorify God, then to denigrate God, to demean God, to accuse God of injustice and unfairness is to de-glorify him. And that, of course, is what the devil always wants us to do. I want to add also a a further, if you like, parameter in which we think about this. 
And that is simply that in order to understand the Bible, we need to approach it in a certain way. And that way is not for us to come and say, well, God, you have got to show me how the Bible suits me and my standard. John Owen says that in order to understand the scripture, we need, quote, meekness, humility, godly fear, reverence, submission of soul and conscience unto the authority of God with a resolution and readiness for and unto all that obedience he requires of us, especially that which is internal in the hidden man of the heart. Now, that's just typical Owen, because what he's saying is this. It's all very well to say, I believe the Bible, and I believe God, and I'll do what God says. But what Owen is concerned with is, what do you think of God? And that actually is what the devil is concerned with, and that also is what God is concerned. We are to love God with our whole heart and soul and mind. And you cannot love a God who you believe is unfair or cruel or, or unjust. And so the person who asks the question and says, well, actually, that's my reason for not believing, in a strange kind of way, they've got some justification <coughs> in that. But as we will see, I think um, it's approaching it completely in the wrong way. We need to come with a certain amount of humility and meekness, and godly fear, and reverence, and submission, as, as Owen points out, saying, we don't know. So many things we don't know. So, sorry for the lengthy introduction. Let's turn to the Word of God, and let's turn to Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. Luke 16, verse 19. This is Jesus speaking page 1050. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the, t the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go over from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment." Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now let's look at this parable and especially this last verse, if we put it up, and there's the uh, number there as well. Now, this is a parable that's designed to teach us something. It is a parable, so it's not designed to give us details of the afterlife. That's important 
to understand. But its teaching is very, very clear. For those who say, well, it's just symbolic or uh, mythological or whatever, you're missing the point. Jesus is trying to teach something. He is teaching something. And it's incredibly um, profound what he is teaching. He gives an account of a rich man uh, who's dressed in purple and fine linen. Purple in those days meant wealth. If you like the modern equivalent, he's somebody who had a, you know, Gucci shoes and a, a Rolex watch and um, drove a Porsche. Um, if you're one of those, I'll have a shot afterwards. But no, um, it, it, You know what I mean. It's the, someone who lived a life of luxury every day. Sometimes uh, this parable he's called uh, divas, but that is not what he's called. That's just the Latin for rich man. Uh, he, as, as it happens, I, was, I sound so cultured, don't I? Paradise Lost and classical music, but I was listening to a piece of classical music which was entitled Lazarus and Divas. Um, but that's what it's for. It's just the Latin for the rich man. He is not named here. Although, incidentally, Lazarus is, and he's the only person who's named in Jesus' parables. Now, here's the interesting thing about this man. We are not told that he did anything wrong. We are not told that he was a murderer. We are not told that he committed adultery. We are not told that he, he robbed or stole or whatever. We're not told of any sins of what we call commission that he did. But nonetheless, we are told of his great sin in what he didn't do. The sins of omission and neglect. <coughs> I know I do this all the time, but I, I, I can't beat Calvin, so I'm just going to stick with Calvin. He says this, even the dogs came. It was quite enough to prove the hardened cruelty of the rich man that the sight of wretchedness like this did not move him to compassion. Had there been a drop of humanity in him, he ought at least to have ordered a supply from his kitchen for the unhappy man. But the crowning exhibition of his wicked and savage and worse than brutal disposition was that he did not learn pity even from the dogs. Because the dogs came and licked his sores. The dogs weren't torturing him. The dogs were trying to comfort him. And this rich man who had more than enough, more than enough, didn't even do that. And Calvin is right. The hardened cruelty of the rich man. Some of you are old enough to remember the first time that the BBC showed those horrible pictures of the famine in Ethiopia and Eritrea. And you saw the picture of the emaciated, dying child, and you were absolutely horrified. And you were moved, as many people were moved, to give. But we get compassion fatigue, because there's so many of these just now. And people exploit that as well. They use it. You can only see so many pictures, and you, you just can't cope. Um, I'm sorry, but when the news about Yemen comes on, I can't watch it because it's so horrific. How many million people with cholera? How many children dying? And how many times have we provided arms that have enabled that as well? I can't watch it. I, I can't. It, it, for me, it, I don't want to watch it because I know it immunizes me to some extent. You're sitting having your, your coffee and you're 
you know, cheese on toast or whatever and, and watching people starving. It's just, there's just something profoundly wrong with that. And I'm sorry again, but all the kind of charitable stuff that we do in our culture, we think it's all wonderful. We have these charitable concerts and, and, and various other things, and it's not. Not really. Not in comparison with what is going on in the world. And this rich man, he went to hell. We'll see why in a moment. The poor man was called Lazarus, uh, same name as Eleazar, which means God has helped. Now, you have to stop and think about that a minute. If we were showing pictures of them, the rich man and, uh, and, and all his luxury and his great funeral and the many people who would say how wonderful he was and the great send-off he got and the party and the charitable things perhaps they may even have done in the name of this rich man. And then we showed you a picture of Lazarus lying at the gate of the rich man with his sores being licked by the dogs. Would you really say God has helped? Because you see, in our culture, what we would say is, oh, I don't believe in God because that suffering happens. And we say that while we ourselves are in luxury. But this is a man who's called God has helped. He longed to eat the crumbs from the rich man's table. We know he was a believer because he died and he went to heaven. He left the rich man's table, which he got nothing from, and he went to the table in heaven. Again, Calvin, I think, puts this beautiful. He says, on these subjects, the words of Christ give us little information, and in a manner which is fitted to restrain curiosity. The wicked are described as fearfully tormented by the misery which they feel, as desiring some relief, but cut off from hope, and thus experience a double torment and as having their anguish increased by being compelled to remember their crimes and to compare the present blessedness of believers with their own miserable and lost condition. The Scripture is absolutely clear, and Christ is absolutely clear, that you do not get away with injustice and wrong and sin in this world. You will not get away with it in the world to come. He was in Hades. Now, some people say, oh, well, that was just the place of the dead, except Jesus says that it's Gehenna because it's clearly a place of punishment where he was in agony. And the rich man, you see, in hell, people say, well, if people are in hell, then they'll repent. But that's not what happens. They, they shake their fists at God. This, it sounds as though he's repenting. You know, have pity and send Lazarus, first of all, to himself. But there's a note of arrogance here, not contrition. Lazarus was somebody. Come on, you will do what I say. But earth's values no longer apply in heaven. There are a different set of values. The rich man had had the feasting. He had had the opportunity to do good. He had chosen what he wanted, a life without God. And so he got what he wanted. It's an important principle to realize that nobody is in hell who did not choose to go there. And again, he wants to send Lazarus on a, mission, uh, on a mission to go and tell his brothers. He implies that he's being treated unfairly. More or less, he's saying, if only I had the information, then I would have behaved differently. Now, can you go and tell my brothers? And I note, incidentally, that Lazarus is silent throughout. He doesn't complain about his treatment on earth, and he doesn't gloat over the rich man. Now, here's the key in this. The rich man is the way that he is, not because he's rich, 
Bible is not against wealth, but he's the way that he is because he neglected God and his teachings, and he trusted in his riches rather than God and the scriptures that he had. And Jesus makes this astonishing statement that should shake you to the core of your being. Maybe some of you here are not a Christian. You say, if only I had evidence, I would believe. Jesus says, do you know this? If they're not going to believe Moses and the prophets, if they're not going to believe the word of God, then even if someone rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe. That wouldn't be sufficient evidence. So, How does that all help us answer the question? Firstly, Jesus believed and taught about hell. You will struggle to find teaching about hell in the Old Testament. Jesus believed and taught about hell. The Jesus who loves, the Jesus who gives himself. So I want to suggest that, not suggest, I want to make it very clear that um, if we're going to follow Jesus Christ, we've got to accept what he says. Now, I, I was in a unusual, a little dispute this week, and somebody uh, said, well, do you believe Matthew 25? And I, I said, absolutely, I believe Matthew 25, feeding the poor, visiting people in prison. Do you believe Matthew 25? Oh, totally. But Jesus says, if you don't do that, you're going to eternal punishment. Where, your worm, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Do you believe in hell? Oh no, that's rubbish. Well, you see what they're doing? They're pick and mixing. The, they say, I believe this about Jesus. And I believe. Now, by the way, you can do it the other way around. You can get people who say, I believe in hell, but I don't believe in helping the poor. I don't believe in visiting those in prison. I'm sorry, you're not a Christian. You're just not, because you're not following Jesus Christ. And uh, there's a, you know, it, it, it's disturbing. It's profoundly disturbing. But I think our biggest problem here is just simply this. Our picture of God is too small and our understanding of our own abilities is too large. So let me suggest to you that the answer in this whole thing is just simply this. Once we know who God is, then the question is answered. First of all, and I'm going to give you the perfect number of seven. I'm just going to list these so but you'll see uh, as we go through it from, from the rest of the scripture, and I could give you dozens and dozens of verses for each of these. First of all, God is just. When I think about questions like this, I have to have a parameter. And the parameters are this. If I think out, I mean, if you think of God, could God be unjust? You live in hell. You can, how could you cope with that? So, first of all, God is just. That is really important. Lot in... Uh, Abraham, rather, in arguing in terms of his, for Lot, says this, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The fact is that the good and just God will do right. The fact that that good and just God sends some people to hell, according to Jesus, is because that is just. So when someone says it's not fair, actually, that's not true. God always acts justly. God always acts fairly. What that should do, it should reset our parameters of understanding in terms of what sin is, who God is, who we are, and everything else. What we mustn't do is determine who God is by who we are and what we think, because then what we are doing is we are creating a God in our own image. 
Number two, God is good. I think if there's one doctrine I'd like to see the church recover, it's just simply this, the goodness of God. It's stressed in both Old and New Testament. First Peter 2, 3, you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, I think where the devil gets in most of all for us, and, and look, let's admit it, some of us who are believers, that there's this little doubt comes in our heart. Well, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. And then you begin to feel maybe God's not good. And at that point, the devil's got you. Now, the goodness of God is an absolute. If you're taking a parameter, God is just. God is good. There is nothing bad within God, and there is nothing bad that God does. Our understanding of goodness and badness comes from God, but our understanding is distorted because of our sin and because of our limited minds. So the goodness of God. Number three is that God is sovereign. Some people want to say, to try and get around this dilemma, well, God's not in control. But what did the early Christians do when they were faced with an enormously difficult situation and persecution and threats Acts 4.24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The sovereignty of God can be used by the devil to cause us to fear in a bad way if we don't accept that God is good. But if we believe that God is good and accept what Jesus says, and that God is just, then the sovereignty of God is a great comfort. Do you know, for me, with my, my gran, it was enormously important to believe that God was sovereign, to believe that every meeting I had with her was sovereign, to believe that when I prayed with her, it was sovereign, God in his sovereignty. Let me add to that, number four, um, the big word, omniscient, God knows everything. Last Sunday, Andrew preached from Ezekiel 37, And when Ezekiel is asked, he says, you alone, O Lord, know. I have buried many people as a minister. Some, I am as sure as I can be that they went to heaven. We we celebrated their, their life. We celebrated their death. We rejoiced that they were at rest. But I have never in my life buried somebody who I knew for certain went to hell. I didn't know that because I don't know what happens to people Who knows what happens at the very end of someone's life? I don't know the influences. I do not know. I do not know everything. I believe absolutely that there are those who are judged and who go to hell. But I've never been able to say of any individual that they are in hell. I remember I got a phone call from my previous congregation in Broda from a very, very distressed man who wasn't a Christian, who'd gone to a funeral of a young man who had lived quite a dissolute life and the minister had stood up and said, he's now in hell, and he had a go at them all. And there were several hundred people. And I was so distressed. It was way out of line. What that minister didn't know was that young man came to me at three o'clock in the morning when I was minister up there and said, David, please tell me about God and Jesus. And we sat and we talked about that. And two or three times did that. Now, I don't know how God worked in his life. I know there's a reason he came. It was the reason I got out of my bed at three in the morning to answer what I thought would be a drunken visit, but it wasn't. 
It was someone who was serious. And the reason he came at three in the morning, like in Nicodemus, he didn't want his friends to know that he'd been at the manse because in a small village like Brora, everyone knew everything you absolutely did. We don't know. And so we leave it with God. I don't know what's in other people's hearts, but I know that God is just. And then God is present everywhere. Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence? That's important because of prayer. I have relatives, as you may have, that I don't know where they are geographically or spiritually. But the Lord knows, and they're never unreachable. I think of a middle-aged man who was converted, I knew, who was converted through the prayers of his granny. But his granny had died before he was born. But she prayed for her grandchildren and the children that were yet to come. And do you know how he was converted? Through picking up his granny's Bible at one point, godless as could be, and just beginning to read part of it and the spirit beginning to work in his life. That's why prayer is so vital and so important. But people can't get away from God. That's why when I know that there are those of you who have got children who don't go to church and you're very distressed about that and how will they hear? Well, they heard when you were in your home and wherever they are, they could be in the pub right now, they could be shooting up, they could be many, many things, a million miles away in their minds and hearts from God. But God is everywhere and God can reach them. So the sixth thing is this. God is Trinity. He's working for our salvation. Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Father loves and gives the Son and the Spirit, God so loved that he gave his only Son. The Son loves and gives himself, and he gives the Spirit. The Spirit loves and gives us Christ and the Father. And there's that Trinity, the triune God, working for our salvation. And that's where the seventh thing comes in. It's the love of God and the mercy of God that sent Christ. Because if you're for real, and it really bothers you what might happen to your granny or to your family, and you're not using it just as an excuse to turn away from God, then you need to know that the stupidest and the cruelest and the worst thing you could do is listen to the devil and turn away from the God who could save your whole family. There's the story of the Philippian jailer. Acts 16, and it's fascinating because Paul says to him, you believe, you signal, one person, you believe, and you and your family, plural, will be saved. The best thing that could happen because of your family, for your family, is that you believe and you follow Jesus Christ because God so often does work in families To walk away from the one source of salvation, the only Savior, doesn't make any real sense. Walking away doesn't make it untrue, and your unbelief doesn't make it unreal. And indeed, what you've done is you've handed the devil victory, where you've said, 
the mission of Jesus Christ, the mission of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is irrelevant because I'm too scared of the consequences of believing. But it's true. So we plead, we pray, we follow Christ. My other granny was in the borders, a farmer's wife in the borders. And as far as I know, she followed Christ for 90 of her 92 years, if not more, in the whole. She doesn't remember when she wasn't a Christian. And I think of the enormous good that came from that life of not faultless, but faithful service to the Lord. And I, I took her funeral, and I found it incredibly moving, not least that the minister of the local church, who I don't even know was a believer, my granny was a great witness to her. And my granny was brethren and didn't like ministers, especially female ones. So, uh, you know, that was, that was a double whammy. But um, it's, it's, it was the love of God that constrains us. And so I, I, I look at all of this. And, and, you know, there are a couple of questions that I am going to answer that have come. Um, I think one I, I, I do want to answer just now, the other I'm going to leave uh, for a personal conversation, I think. Um, God is outside of time and can see the beginning of human history to the end. From his viewpoint, are some people destined for hell no matter what? No, it's never no matter what. Never no matter what. Now, God being outside of time, uh, don't even bother going with that. Can you, we can't conceive of anything outside of time. We just can't. So the minute you start saying, well, I'm going to think like God thinks. No, you, we can't do that. Does... To, you know, I, I, first of all, I used to think eternity was difficult enough to understand, and I couldn't get my head around that. And recently, I've been reading some more stuff uh, scientifically and philosophically, and believe you me, time is really difficult to understand. So time and eternity, you know, you learn to leave that with the Lord. But no matter what is not the case, because nobody goes to hell no matter what. They go because of what they have chosen and what they have done. So I'll end this um, with maybe just this, this plea. I don't think the question, honestly, I don't think the question is how can I believe in a God who does this? I want to suggest this. The question is how can you not believe when God has revealed himself and done so much for you? Why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you die? Why would you be like Lazarus, bury your head in the sand, get on with life and your own selfish concerns? And then I'm afraid, sorry, one day you are going to die and one day you are going to stand before your maker and one day he is going to ask you, what did you do with what I gave you? Oh, but I was too scared. Oh, but I didn't believe. Oh, but I, you know, if only you'd given more evidence. Oh, if only. But can't you see? That's precisely what he has done. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. What more could you possibly ask of him? If you really care about your family and you want to give them the best, why not give them Christ? You know what it's like? It's like you're scared that your child has a really bad sickness, but because you're scared, you won't take them to the doctor as though taking them to the doctor gives them the sickness. But it doesn't. 
You're scared of the consequences. You're scared of what it might involve. You'd much rather close your eyes and not listen. And we do that with Christ. And I think if you go back to these seven aspects of God, I I believe absolutely in the goodness of God. And so when I cry and I plead for people I know and I love who do not know him, I, I plead, I say, Lord, you're good. You're good. You're fair. You're everywhere. You know everything. And then I have to leave it. Cast your burdens upon him. You've burdened for your children. You're burdened for your parents. You're burdened for your friends. Cast your burdens upon him because he cares for you. You can give people Christ, of course, if you don't have him yourself. So if you are the unbeliever who's saying, I'm not going to believe because of what could happen, I want to ask you to be a little more rational and a little bit more logical. And to be honest, a little fairer. Um, you, You need to come to Christ because Christ works through different people. And I've seen it so many times. People who have no interest in God whatsoever, and then their spouse becomes a Christian. And initially, there's a really strong reaction against, and there's cynicism and everything else. Oh, I won't last, and so on. And then, because of a consistent Christian witness over years, the seed has been sown, and people come to believe. Forgive me for being personal, but going back to my, my first granny, there's a temptation. Driving in that car, there's a temptation to say, I want to run away from all of this. But you know, because I believe absolutely in the goodness of God and in Jesus Christ and what he had done, instead, that temptation turned into a, a, a passion to, Lord, I want people to know. I see them. I see them as lost. It's why walking down the Perth roads earlier this week, and I'm sorry, but dodging the vomit. And instead of, I, wrote, I did write a wee piece, but it wasn't a piece in anger about Freshers Week and so on. I just thought, I, I, I prayed, Lord, these people are lost. They are lost without you. And what a tremendous opportunity we have to share the gospel and the good news. So for me, this question simply becomes, who is God? Who is Jesus? What did Jesus teach? And then what does he want me to do? And the great, great, great news is that God, what's the fruit he says? Some 30, some 60, some a hundredfold. Imagine that. Imagine if every Christian here saw a hundredfold fruit in your life. The whole world would be turned upside down. So I want to turn this completely around. The devil will not de-glorify Christ by attacking him in terms of his goodness and his love when Christ so loved the world, including my relatives, including those I love, that he gave himself. And instead of shaking my fist at God, I rejoice that there is a redeemer, that Jesus paid it all, and that I have a gospel 
to share with those I love. You know, what's that thing? Would you give your Rolo to the person you love, your last Rolo, the wee chocolate? Do you share your Ferrero Rocher or whatever it is if you want to be a bit grander and posher? We share the good things that we have with those we love. Well, if we're believers, we've been given the greatest thing of all. And Jesus doesn't say to us, keep it, close it in, keep it. He says, share it. We share it by our lives. We share it by his working in our midst. We share it in whatever possible way that we can. And who knows but that God will work in many different ways. I leave you with one simple story. Another, another one, sorry, um, involving my family, but this was a very personal question, and it is personal for each one of us. My sister at age 40 was one of the most intelligent atheists I've ever met in my life. She's one of the few people in the world who could out-argue me, and even more stubborn than me. Of all my family, she was the one I thought, no, she won't be converted. You know how she was converted? Extraordinarily. through my son speaking to her, illegally downloading a hundred Tim Keller sermons onto her phone, which was, <laughs> never mind. Um, and through her observing various things. And I had the privilege of baptizing her and then seeing her get married to her boyfriend who was also converted. And now they serve the Lord in running an outreach cafe up in the Capstone Center in Allness, and who knows how many people are being reached through that. Never give up on anybody, but believe that the power and the goodness and the love and the glory of God can work even in your relative who seems so cold and so hard and so far away. It's not you that will save them, it's Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless it to us. It's such a difficult thing, so many things we don't understand, but you are good, you are just, you are sovereign, and you are love, and we know that you are love because of what you have done. How will you not also, along with Christ, graciously give us all things? So we plead, first of all, for ourselves, for any of us here who don't know you, and for those of us who do so quickly forget you. And we plead for, plead for those we love, for those who seem hardened and embittered and cold and indifferent. And we ask that you would work in their lives. And Lord, that we would not be a stumbling block, but rather a help to them. And we plead our God for ourselves that we would not listen to the lies of the evil one when he tells us that you are unjust and unfair and cruel. But instead, we would lift our eyes beyond that and we would see the extraordinary lengths that you have gone to seek and to save that which was lost. May the mind of Christ be in us, for we ask it in your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing.